0: Welcome back to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. With so much going on in life, it can be easy to let things slip every now and then, to neglect things from time to time. Maybe an appointment or a phone call or an email that you realize later that you totally missed something. But I read a news story lately that took neglecting to a whole nother level. About 10 years ago, a woman in Maryland couldn't find her iPhone. She searched for it all over the house, and could never track it down, though she knew she had not left home without it, and she last remembered seeing it on Halloween night of 2012. She said she eventually replaced the iPhone and moved on, and it was a mystery, but she knew it was gone. But recently, the woman and her husband began hearing a banging sound after they flushed their toilet. At first, they thought it might be because the toilet was old, or maybe the house was poorly constructed. But when the woman's husband took a plunger to the toilet, it apparently suctioned out something they weren't expecting, the iPhone she had lost 10 years ago. The back of the phone was popped open, but the iPhone was in good condition considering it had spent 10 long years in toilet pipes. The lost iPhone now recovered. If we neglect things or we're not careful, they can go missing and can be hard to recover. That's why keeping an eye on what we have and maintaining them is often easier than replacing them maintaining your weight after a diet is far easier than losing it again maintaining muscle mass is preferred over seeing it atrophied and building it up again maintaining your credit score takes effort but it can be hard to raise it once it's dropped maintaining a marriage takes commitment but restoring it can be much harder if not impossible and maintaining a spiritual life with jesus christ requires dedication but the blessings of doing so only enrich us and others in the end Paul wants the Thessalonians to maintain the basics, not to lose them, but keep them. Last time, we saw that Paul encouraged them to esteem one another, to acknowledge, support, and honor the spiritual leaders in their midst, who are doing a lot with all the challenges and opposition facing this young church in Thessalonica. And Paul exhorted them, too, to take care of one another, to not expect a handful of spiritual leaders to keep the church healthy and alive, but to take care of one another, pursuing good both for themselves and for all. Because when Paul and the team had left, the church had a good and solid foundation. But with all that they were facing and the challenges they were overcoming, Paul doesn't want them losing the basics and neglecting things that would be hard to gain back. He would rather they maintain those core foundational elements and build them in with them in place and rather than lose sight and struggle with pieces missing. So in this podcast, as he closes his letter, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of some key areas, foundational principles and truths and realities of living in a relationship with Jesus and with our hearts set toward the kingdom of God. So let's finish the book of 1 Thessalonians, verses 16 through 28 of chapter 5. Although his time in Thessalonica had been brief, probably only about three weeks, Paul knew that these believers had a good grasp on the basics. So as Paul seeks here to remind them to maintain core things, he doesn't go into much detail. It almost reads like a bulleted list. Not so much commentary, very very little how-to information. He just lists the things he wants for them to remember, as if to jar their memory and hearts to anything they may be getting distracted from tending to. When I grew up in Hawaii, we participated in Hawaiian outrigger canoe racing, six paddlers in an outrigger canoe, all working together to move the 45 foot long boat through the water, their paddles entering the water in unison, pulling through the water with each stroke, then resetting together to do it all again, a team sport of mutual effort in order to succeed. And in training or in races, either the coach or the steersman would call out commands and they were all brief keeping words to a minimum, to be heard over the wind, the sea, the heavy breathing of the paddlers exerting effort, each command a reminder to do what we had learned in hours of practice. You'd hear the command timing when someone was off pace, meaning they needed to get back in time with the other paddlers, or back paddle when it was time to reverse to turn the canoe around, or eyes in the boat if someone was losing focus, which meant losing ground for the entire crew. No lengthy explanation was usually given, just one word to get you back to the core disciplines of a winning crew. That's what I see Paul doing here. No need to belabor what he was referring to because they knew these things. They were core things and a part of the basics of their faith. And they had not yet neglected them, hopefully. But Paul is jostling their memories to not neglect them, to keep them a priority. We see the first exhortations in verses 16 through 18, short and to the point. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First, rejoice always. Be joyful at all times. Simple, right? Or maybe not so simple, especially when you consider that the Thessalonians were going through these things, these hard things, the attacks, the pressure and opposition that they were now dealing with since coming to the faith. Remember the mob and Jason being taken from his house and having to pay security. We read about these things in Acts chapter 17. Now, Paul had pretty thick skin, and even he had to leave after just three weeks, lest the situation got too hard for the new believers in Thessalonica with him there, potentially adding fuel to the fire. Rejoicing. It can be hard to do when things are not going well. But joy and happiness are different things, many would say. You can be happy in the moment due to circumstances, but that can quickly change. Something small happens, and we can lose that feeling of giddiness. But joy and rejoicing run deeper. The sense that God is still good and in control, even when my circumstances seem less than ideal. And while we may not have joy for things, we can have joy in all things. Notice in Scripture some of the threads we see connecting to rejoicing. Colossians 1.24 I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul knew that God was doing something good through his temporary inconveniences, which made it worth it for him, and he could rejoice that through the pain there would be gain. In 1 Peter, a book written to Christians who were being scattered all over under growing persecution. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They could rejoice in the less than stellar circumstances because they knew God was doing something more important, more eternal, and something necessary that could only come through the hard and refining circumstances that they were facing a bit later in the same letter 1 peter 4:13 but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy rejoicing exceedingly with a bigger eternal picture in mind in light of the current though challenging temporal circumstances rejoice always paul writes As Christians, we believe God has the whole world in his hands. We believe our eternal fate is sealed in Jesus. We believe he has a plan and a purpose to return and establish his kingdom. So there is always something to rejoice over that is not moved, even when my life is moved. That is the core foundational command that Paul is shouting out for them to remember, a quick readjustment to recenter them. The enemy will seek to rob us of our joy, to get us to focus on the temporal and not the bigger picture. To selfishly see things through our lens rather than through the lens of the gospel. To forget the power of God or the sovereignty of God or the resources of God than to lose my joy and squirm in despair instead. Rejoice always, Paul shouts out. At the time of this recording, it's really hard to watch Ukraine being bombarded. A little over a week now since they were invaded by Russia and people's hearts are heavy to see this. But I so appreciate the missionaries and believers who are posting good news, stories of what God is doing and how believers are being the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of such horrible things. I had a friend at work ask me about the situation, knowing I had used to live in Europe. And of course, many Americans don't know geography too well, so it all seems the same to them. But she was pretty distraught over what was taking place. And I was able to share some some of the good things that the Lord is doing in spite of the bad things. Just posts I had seen on social media, since I have European ministry connections. Groups renting vans to get people from the border to temporary housing. Google Forms being created so people can sign up to host a family f- uh, fleeing. Conference centers being turned into refugee centers. People renting Airbnbs just to give some shell-shocked people a few days to get their bearings. One missionary wrote about the bomb shelter ministry he has realized that he has. He writes, bomb shelter ministry, quote, is, I must admit, not a ministry profile I ever thought I'd have. And yet we are already seeing how fruitful it has been. Our neighbors have heard more about Christ, heard more scripture, and been more been led in more prayer in the last week than most of them probably have in their lives. And in addition to our our Father prayer, he writes, I've taken to reading various Psalms with them, a particularly fitting book for us in Ukraine, as David often cries out amid being hunted by his enemies. Another pastor I went to Bible college with posted some pictures of a newborn and wrote this, baby Mia was born on Sunday. I've known her mom since she was a little girl. Saturday, I was at the border to meet them as they were trying to cross and after a 40 plus hour wait in line in the cold, but before arriving in Poland, labor began. Mom was rushed to a local hospital and it seemed like crossing the border with a newborn was now out of reach physically after that. Yet, because of some wonderful people in Poland who we are working with, a handful of phone calls were made, a very ordinary Polish gal who'd been working in the border area voluntarily helping folks with blankets and heaters on the Ukrainian side, A car was arranged and she went and picked up mom and baby from the hospital and escorted them through the border rather quickly. Mom is here now with her sister and sister-in-law and nephews in an Airbnb and doing great. One of the bravest young ladies I have ever met. So cool. And churches from all around Europe are packing up their vans and heading that way, bringing supplies or vehicles just to do something, to do anything. A friend of mine headed off with her pastor and his wife for a few days with a van of supplies, and I contacted her to check in, and she wrote this. It's been a long two days. We got back home late last night. Yesterday, we drove close to the Ukrainian border to offer rides to people who are transitioning through or are staying on in Hungary. We were able to offer a ride to 17 people, kids included. It's mixed feelings. The thought of them having to flee with an unknown future, it breaks my heart. Things are hard, and things are bad. But stories like these, well, they make my heart rejoice. So I shared things like this with my coworker who was pretty shaken by all that's happening. And she commented how the news is not necessarily telling those stories. And it gave her a little bit of hope and joy in the midst of a horrible situation. She texted later that day and said, our conversation today was not much needed for me. I appreciate you sharing all of your insight and perspectives. We can rejoice always. And we are to rejoice always as believers, because we can. It's not a callous to ignore reality and what is going on perspective or the world's version of just think positively. It's a true underlying foundation of knowing that God is good. And in that we can rejoice, can't we? That God is in charge, that God is sovereign, that God has the whole world in his hands and that we can rejoice. The next thing Paul said there was pray without ceasing. To keep the lines of communication open with God at all times. It's something that he wants the Thessalonians and for us to remember. That the wall has been torn down in Jesus and we have access to the Father. When we hit hard things in life, our automatic response for many of us is to take action. To do what we can do. To turn to our resources. To fix things the best way we can. And when we might turn to prayer at times and sporadically, Paul challenges them to pray without ceasing. To keep one eye open, of course, especially when you're on the road, but a posture of prayer can accompany us throughout our days, whispering to the Lord, what we seek in the moment, but also listening since prayer is a two-way street. Sometimes we can get in the habit of praying in the morning in devotions, praying at our at or around meals, then saying, and now I lay me down to sleep prayer at bedtime. But Paul knew firsthand, guys, we need Jesus at all times. So don't close the prayer line to God. When I first got internet at home, I was living in my old socialist block, concrete apartment building in Slovenia, and it was dial-up internet. I had to pull the long cord out, plug it in by the phone in the foyer, feed the cord into the living room or the spare bedroom, and plug it into my laptop or my desktop, and then dial in then wait for the squelching squeal to tell me that I was finally online, and then wait some more for it to connect, and then wait for things to download or upload, and then do some searching, but eventually you had to get off and wrap the cord up and go on with our day because, well, maybe we check again in the evening, but you didn't stay on all day because it was more and more data, and because you had to keep the phone line open. Nowadays, no one would put up with that, although some of you might be doing so, and I I congratulate you on your perseverance. We have internet always in most parts of the world, on our cell phones, 4G, then 4G LTE, and now 5G. You go any place and there's usually free open internet and with public access, even connecting when traveling. I've used the internet for work while flying at 38,000 feet above the ground. We are connected without ceasing. And while that can be distracting depending on what you're connected for, Paul says that we should pray without ceasing, to be connected with God at all times in a posture of prayer without ceasing. It means without intermission, incessantly, no breaks. One teacher I listened to said the term there could be used for coughing. The annoying (coughs) little cough (coughs) you have that (coughs) keeps, just keeps tickling (coughs) the back of your throat (coughs) and causes a constant (coughs) interruption. That's the way prayer should be mixed into our day. Paul also says there in verse 18, not only should we be praying without ceasing, but in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will for you, among other things, is to be thankful, full of thanks, to have a heart that worships and gives glory at all times. Paul wrote that in the last times, perilous times would come, and one of the characteristics would be that man would be unthankful taking and receiving but not stopping to express thanks or feeling so entitled that the awareness that it is undeserved is lost. In everything, not for everything, but in everything, there's something to be thankful for. Learning to give thanks is important and it can be so helpful, like people struggling with anxiety or worry or depression. Making a list of 10 things you're thankful for, it can change perspective. Or when dealing with people and relationships that are strained, being able to stop long enough to find some things that you're thankful for when it comes to that person, it can be a game changer. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. The psalmist encouraged the reader to come into God's presence with thanksgiving as a key to open the door with. That's one reason at church we often start with praise and worship, to kickstart our hearts with thankfulness for what God has done for us, among other things, and to be able to truly commune with him. Even in Leviticus, there was a peace offering for thanksgiving, one that involved offering cakes made with grain and oil to the Lord. I'm thinking pastries, bringing donuts to the Lord in thanksgiving as an offering. But that is perhaps a reason that Paul tells them to give thanks in everything. Because learning to be thankful keeps us in fellowship with God. Rather than falling into pits of despair where we begin to think, Where's God? Why has he abandoned me? Case in point, Job and his wife, they both lost everything. And Job's wife said, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He was still able to maintain his relationship with God in the midst of it. He didn't spiral down the path of putting a wedge between him and God. It was dark for sure, but he could still look up and see God's face shining on him. Something Job expressed well when he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He had a thankful heart for life and God in his life and for what little he had left. Even if he had nothing else, he was thankful that God had not abandoned him. Some people find it good to start each day with making a list of things that they're thankful for. We're starting in prayer with giving thanks, naming specific things that they thank God for. Or expressing thanks to people before confronting things that they need to deal with. Like saying, say three things you're thankful for before you complain or criticize your spouse or kids. It might just help a little bit. And it's not just a popular psychology. Giving thanks in everything is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's what Paul tells us. God's will is that we could find thanks in everything we're going through. In verses 16 through 18, Paul was encouraging them to maintain areas of their heart, their attitude, their perspectives. Something that Proverbs tells us is is of of most importance. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Meaning if our heart is sick, the rest of life will be impacted as well. So keeping our hearts by rejoicing, by praying, and by remaining thankful, that's a heart checkup that will bleed over into all parts of life. And now Paul has some quick words about their need to maintain the work of the Holy Spirit and the dependence on him to work in and through the body. We see this in verses 19 through 22. He writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Dependence on the Holy Spirit was not optional, nor should it be. Jesus told his own disciples, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. And then, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And a bit further, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The New Testament believer has been promised that the work of the Holy Spirit is available, which is amazing, since in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon certain people at certain times for certain callings or needs. But Joel prophesied that with the coming of the Messiah, things would change in relation to the third person of the Trinity. Something that's quoted in the book of Acts in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit's poured out. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. The Holy Spirit would be poured out on all believers. But Paul saw throughout the ministry that just because the Spirit was available, It didn't mean that people were taking full advantage of his availability. He questioned the Galatian believers. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That can be a tendency to have God's spirit available to us, but instead to depend on our own flesh, our own strength, our abilities, or resources, and make the spirit virtually ineffective in our midst. A sort of, okay, God, thanks for the kickstart, but I'll take it from here. So he shouts out to the church in Thessalonica, do not quench the spirit. The word quench means to extinguish, like to put out a torch or a fire or a lamp. To me, it reminds me of Smokey the Bear asking us to help prevent forest fires. And after your campfire and all your s'mores and telling stories around the fire, even as the flames begin to die down and the fire may only be some coals remaining, glowing reddish-orange, but still embers that could be fanned into flame, especially if more fuel is added, so you quench it. You pour water on it to make sure it is out completely, before heading into the tent or the camper at night. Fire is powerful, but it can be quenched by putting a suppressant on it or by robbing it of fuel to keep it going or by choking it of life-giving air and stifling it. And so it goes with the spirit. By pouring certain things into our lives, like sin, it can put the spirit out. By starving it of fuel, by not feeding our spirit with things like the word, it burns out. Or by choking it, sometimes just smothering our lives with so much that we live in the flesh and the spirit smolders. Don't do it, Paul shouts. Part of that too in verses 20 and 21. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Some people are hesitant to the things of the Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit like prophecy, often because the gift has been abused or overemphasized. And so some churches and believers move to the other direction in wanting to protect things like the authority of the Word of God versus odd and strange new prophecies that take some believers off in heresy, or in order to anchor themselves from experiential-based faith, they ground in the Word and reject the prophetic or charismatic gifts. But that desire to stay safe and right can actually quench the Spirit if not careful. Paul's advice instead is, do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Just be discerning. Use the word to test it and hold fast to the good things. God wants to strengthen, encourage, comfort, and exhort the church through the gifts. They're meant to build up the body. And when used correctly, the gifts of the Spirit are so good. I recommend the book Living Water by Chuck Smith. So simple such a good explanation of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit being manifested in such natural ways, to the point that you may even say, wait a second, was that just such and such a gift? God showing up all the time and more than we give him credit for. On this theme of the Spirit, Paul also writes, abstain from every form of evil. This exhortation in verse 22, sin quenches the Spirit like nothing else. I was just reading the tragic story of Samson this week in the book of Judges, a judge with an intriguing anointing from God, but one who really struggled with his flesh and carnality at the same time, and reading about him losing his anointing and power. So tragic to read in Judges 1620, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He had quenched the spirit. Such a good picture to abstain from every form of evil. And Paul mentions every form of evil to abstain from it. If you've ever dieted or cut something out for a while, it can be hard, especially at first. But once you get to a certain point, going back to even the smallest thing, you feel it. It makes you feel bad or or sick or causes symptoms to return that you were trying to remedy. Abstain from every form of evil. Don't cheat on the diet. They had stepped away from many things in their culture as believers, leaving the idols, stepping away from the pagan religion and practices, many of them cultural as well as religious. And Paul wanted them to keep away from those things, to maintain the healthy spiritual diet that they had, because it was easier to keep going, and even a little bit of the old stuff could be detrimental. When I was in Slovenia, there were a number of believers, mostly young men, who had gotten saved while out of the country. Many of them had gone off to drug communes due to heroin or other drug addiction, And a lot of them went to Spain to a ministry called Reto Center. They would live there, get clean off drugs, and be discipled in a communal Christian setting. And after a period of time, which for many was usually a couple of years, they might come home. And if so, they would usually find a local church and try and connect to it. So they would keep from going back into their old lives and their old friends and their old circles, their old patterns and their old habits, but truly bear fruit as followers of Jesus with the support of a church family. And I remember one young man who came back and he seemed to have his life together, seemed to be making good choices, getting on his feet. He wasn't super involved in the church, but it was good and encouraging to see him making steps in his faith now that he had returned from rehab. And unfortunately, he messed up. And we got the call that he had died of an overdose. Not sure how much or how often of it, or if it was just a one-time thing, but the old doses that he had been taking before he went into rehab, even one of those, it would have been lethal. His system having detoxed from it, and the poison too much for him now that he had come clean. He couldn't handle the doses of before, and it killed him. Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians or us falling into a similar trap. Abstain from every form of evil. Jesus has set us free from many things. Don't go back to them. In the Old Testament, Israel had spent a season enslaved in Egypt, and God delivered them powerfully, having set them free. And throughout Scripture, we see a solemn warning between the lines, Do not go back to Egypt don't go back, stay away from it. And for believers too, there is no freedom to go back to Egypt. God brought us out and we are not to go back. These Thessalonian believers had come, had become bright lights in their city, set free by the gospel of Jesus, but they still lived in close proximity to the old life. The Lord had not called them out and moved them on someplace new. They were to stay there and shine for him, but it can be tough to face the old temptations and challenges. So, Paul wants them to remain in fellowship, to be in the Spirit, and not go back to Egypt, but to abstain from every form of evil. As he begins winding up this first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul has a few more remarks meant to help the believers stay focused and maintain the things God has done in them. We see verses 23 and 24. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Who also will do it getting saved is what jesus came to do but redeeming our life completely for god is part of that work too it's one thing to receive jesus to pray a sinner's prayer of repentance but god then works to restore our lives to what he intended for them that's sanctification saving us but then making us more like jesus sanctifying meaning to take something and make it fit for holy use Aaron and I have been volunteering at a pregnancy center, and we have just been shadowing in the counseling opportunities for now, but it was I was with a male client, and since the center also offers free STD testing, and this clinic makes it a point to share the gospel aloud by each client, asking permission, of course, and this man gave permission, and as this man was hearing the gospel, you could see his wheels were turning. And he had lots of questions, but something he said was basically that would it be okay to just receive Jesus and then keep going on in the life that the way it's been doing the same things? A great question. Jesus does save us freely. His sinless death, burial and resurrection. It's the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. It's all that we need. And we're saved by grace through faith. But this guy was right in his questioning, because once we are saved, God doesn't abandon us, but he works in our lives to restore the things that the locusts have eaten. But what most people before coming to Jesus don't realize is they get overwhelmed with the thought of thinking that they need to get saved by Jesus, but then that they themselves might be responsible to clean their life up after that, to change things, to stop living the way they once did and start living in a, quote, Christian way. And for many, that keeps them from coming to Jesus because they think that that's just too hard. that they, they don't have it in them to change. That's not the gospel. And Paul reminds the Thessalonians of that here. Now may the God of peace himself, the God who made peace with you through the gospel of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. God is committed to the work of sanctification in our lives. He's more concerned with it than we are, in fact. We might get a few parts cleaned up to the best of our ability, but he will sanctify us completely so that our whole spirit, soul, and body are brought under his rule, preserved blameless, no longer under guilt and condemnation, until Jesus comes back for us. God is faithful, and he will do it. Such freeing words. Perhaps some of these believers in Thessalonica were having a hard time struggling with their flesh, tempted by the things of the old life. Maybe they weren't feeling like they were progressing in holiness the way like they thought they would. Maybe some were doing it in their own strength and stumbling over and over again. Perhaps some were finding victory in one area, like their body, but their mind was struggling. Or their spirit, victory there, but the body was fighting temptation. Paul challenges them to trust that the Lord is committed to their sanctification. He would help them maintain it and follow through with it. Sometimes when we fall short, even as believers, we can have the attitude of, oh, well, I might as well just go with it. A sort of, oops, I broke my diet and had a cookie, I might as well eat the whole bag. The God of peace is committed wholeheartedly to us in the pursuit of holiness, and Paul wanted them to be encouraged in the advocate that they had in the Lord. Paul finishes up here with a few more reminders, bullet points basically, of what they can focus on to maintain the work of God in their lives and their church. We see in verses 24 through 28, Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. They should remember first, not to neglect prayer. Second, to stay in continual close fellowship with other believers. Third, to stay in the word of God. And fourth, understand and be strong in the grace of God. These things would be critical in them maintaining God's continued work in their lives and in their church. First, he said there, be praying. He already mentioned that a few lines before, pray without ceasing. Now he says, pray for us. There's something powerful about praying for others. It causes us to rejoice when we see God come through with answered prayer, but it also keeps us close to the heart of God because his heart becomes our heart when we pray. Paul wanted them praying for them too, because this would keep them focused on the greater work of God beyond their own personal lives beyond what was just happening in their little town of Thessalonica or big town, I should say. It was pretty big for that time. We can often get stuck in the Lord. Bless my little kingdom prayers and mindset. But Paul wanted them to maintain a kingdom perspective, a kingdom mindset and praying for others like Paul would help them to do that. So keep that in mind. Are there people serving Jesus that you can pray for? Those in the front lines outside your bubble who could use your prayer support? It's an important thing to do to even maintain your focus on the kingdom. Second, he reminds them to stay in continual close fellowship with other believers. They couldn't do it on their own. And they were to greet one another with a holy kiss, he wrote there, as they gathered to encourage each other. The kiss, of course, was cultural. Notice Paul adds a holy kiss there. But maintaining good Christian fellowship is necessary to grow and thrive as a believer. Paul knew that the environment in Thessalonica was hostile toward believers as it is in much of the world today. And so he encouraged them to find refuge often in one another's encouraging presence. Third, they were to read this epistle, all of the holy brethren. Paul wants them to stay in the word of God, to let scripture and the truth of God encourage and strengthen them. We are bombarded with constant messages contrary to God's thinking, conflicting with the truth and reality that comes from God's perspective. So washing in the water of the word is something we always could use more of in all forms. From having daily devotions in scripture, to studying it individually or as a group more in depth, to hearing it instructed at a Bible study or church service or recorded teaching or podcast, to talking about things when you sit down in your house or when you walk by the way or when you lie down, when you rise up. Just spiritual conversations centered on the gospel and and on scripture. Having conversations about scripture or with scripture in the mix as, as a daily occurrence. Well, what does the Bible have to say about that? Paul said a healthy diet of scripture would help them to maintain a spiritual life. And fourth, verse 28, where Paul closes the letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Paul wanted them to maintain a right and healthy understanding of and be strong in the grace of God, God's unmerited favor, his grace. Not a relationship based upon works, but because God loves us and is for us and completed the work of the cross. It's not a works based relationship, but one founded and built in grace. And maintaining a grace-filled life was something Paul himself, a former Pharisee, wanted to be continually reminded of, lest he fall back into a works mindset, feeling like it was all about him and his strength and his resources and his religiosity, instead of the grace of God, something that would be core to Paul's message all of his days, as he even writes in his final epistle, Second Timothy, as he's passing the torch, where he says, "'You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus.'" It's grace that Paul left them with, and grace that would maintain them, and us, to the very end. A few years back, I found myself at the chiropractor. My back had taken a toll, and I was not doing so well. This chiropractor had a different technique, not just cracking and twisting. This doctor used x-rays to find the problem areas in my spine, and a calibrated device to target just the areas that needed it. I had to go back quite a bit at first, and then, more sporadically, a couple times a week at the beginning, and then once a week, And first to deal with the pain, and then to work on the realignment of the spine. And I was kind of skeptical that at least my pain was decreasing, so I kept with it. After almost a year of some regular visits, we did a follow-up x-ray, and I was pretty surprised I could actually see my spine in better shape. Space where there had once, the vertebrae had once been too close together due to degeneration. A line where they had once been out of whack. I mean, I could actually see it. So I kept up with it. Another year or so, the next x-ray, even more improvement. So I keep going because it's made a difference. I go about once a week, though if I skip a few, it's not so bad. And when I go, I'm literally on the table for about 60 seconds. He does this thing, I check out and I'm on my way. But it's the maintenance that has made the difference, the consistent attention without neglecting it. Paul's encouragement at the end of this letter is to maintain those basic things, to keep it up, and not to neglect the spiritual principles and disciplines that keep us aligned spiritually and rightly related to God. Have you neglected some of those things that we looked at today? The thing about the Lord is that he will always be ready when we press into him again. And that is something we can all do more of, am I right? So, Lord, we thank you for this book and the encouragement that it gives and the hope that it brings and the perspective it points to. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in maintaining what it takes in this committed love relationship that we have with you. God, I ask that you would forgive us for the distractions, God, for the laziness, the misplaced opportunities or the the sin that draws us away. And thank you, Lord, for your grace that you've committed to us and that we can always depend on. And God of peace, we ask that you that you would sanctify us completely. And may our whole spirit, our soul, our body may be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, at your coming, Lord, that coming that we read about in this book that we long for. Comfort us, Lord, with that promise. We praise you, Lord, that you've called us, that you are faithful, and that you also will do it. For you who began the good work in us will be faithful to complete it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.